The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Our scripture text this morning is found in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. This is the word of the Lord. As Chuck said, that uh, in two days, the uh, American midterm elections <clears throat> will conclude. And uh, if you see it the way I've seen it the last several years, increasingly these these political elections, these seasons around the elections have been occasions that erode the unity of the church and the unity of the country. I mean, there's a lot of reasons for that. I mean, the, the unity, the divisions are exposed, the divisions are increased, the, the resulting polarization and, and, and fragmentation on the country has spilled over into the church in America and into the local church and even into families harming Christian unity. Ed Stetzer is a, a pastor, missiologist. Um, I'm actually part of a, a little fellowship of church planting leaders that he pulls together twice a year to think together about the current context in America. And, and Ed, uses a, the pan, a, he, Ed uses a pandemic as a metaphor to describe the various forces in our culture right now that contribute to disunity in the country and in the, in the church. He has an article, you can find it online, entitled Six Other Pandemics We Need to Talk About. So he's not talking about COVID-19. He's talking about these other things that are spreading, eroding unity. I'll list them for you. Uh, number one, a pandemic of mental illness. And there he cites just the, the rising evidence of increased stress, anxiety, depression, insomnia, suicides, uh, alcohol or, or psychoactive drug abuse. He just says, this, this, is a, this is a thing spreading across our country and it harms unity. Number two, a pandemic of distrust. Quote, we're seeing the highest level of distrust toward institutions, the media, and other entities in at least a generation. This has huge, huge manifestations and ramifications for how we relate to others 
especially those with differing ideologies, we simply don't know what or whom to believe. Third, a pandemic of division decides the lay of the land in the country and the divided time in the evangelical church right now. Number four, a pandemic of defamation. Quote, I've never seen social media become so vicious so quickly. People including far too many professing believers click and send too quickly with too much outrage. The ubiquity of social media has afforded people the opportunity to trash one another at an unprecedented level. People have far less restraint toward damaging the reputations of others. That's number four. Number five, a pandemic of disorientation. Here he cites that there's been so many changes in our, in our world, in our country right now impacting our churches and our families. And some of those changes have been good and some of those have been bad. And he says that leaves us with a a widespread disorientation. Quote, not only in individual identity, but also national identity. Could add church identity. We're becoming a, a, a nation of people that some no longer recognize. And this has disoriented many. I mean, when I feel this way, I say to my wife, Stop the world. I want to get off. Like, I don't recognize. Number six. A pandemic of disruption. And and this one, he he really links to COVID-19 and and the way of life that coming through COVID-19 had on us and how it shapes the future. I'm going to quote him now. Quote, the the way we, we relate and engage with one another has changed. Some people may never again see as many people each day as they did before the pandemic. These disruptions brought about a new normal. We will have to learn to navigate. This separation, this, di- you know, standing in line. I was standing in line to buy gas and We're 10 feet apart. All of this makes unity in the church more challenging today. And uh, that leads to my aim. My aim is that we as Bethlehem downtown might be strengthened by grace to be a people who live worthy of the calling to which we have been called by our eagerness to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace as a church. I'm just quoting the text. What I'm after, what I pray for, and good night, the Bible's all over it. This text is all over it, so I'm not out in left field is that God would give us grace to be a culture. A culture that's eager to preserve unity in disagreements, in conflict, in, 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 in the political seasons, in all that. That stuff doesn't need to wreck Christian unity. It's it's actually crazy that it did. And it does. 
Let me pray. Father in heaven, thanks so much for this text at such a time as this. It is so good. It is so full of grace. It is so rich that I need your help to open it up to us, these brothers and sisters now, with the impact that you intend, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So just a a word about the context in Ephesians. If you know Ephesians, like many of you do, the first three chapters contain Paul's, I mean, it's just largely Paul's just over-the-top praise to God for his sovereign grace to us in Christ. And uh, he declares the, the, the goodness of the glories of, of God. And he says, we're going to praise him for the glory of his grace forever and ever and ever. And then in, uh, in chapter 2, he, he shows God's design to save not merely Jews, but Jews and Gentiles, Jews and non-Jews, that, that God is doing this thing in the gospel, uniting all peoples into one, he calls it one new man, one, one body of believers, God, God's people, fellow citizens with the saints, members of God's household. God is doing this thing and pulling these, these uh, peoples that have, had historically been separated, Jew and Gentile, together into one church. And then now Paul, writing from prison, you know, it's interesting that he says, I therefore a prisoner for the Lord. And you think, what? Why does he throw that in right here? And I'll tell you why. This is, I, he doesn't say. So this is, this is a guess from, from me. <laughs> I'm thinking, you know, Paul lands in prison Because in this gospel mission, he's constantly going around preaching first to the Jew and then to the Gentiles. And you know, over and over again, it's because he goes to the Jews first that he ends up in jail. If he would just, you know, like, just just pursue that you're the apostle to the Gentiles. Just just do the easy thing. But no, he's in jail over and over again because of this labor to bring the two reconciled to God into one people. And it's in that sense that I see him saying, look, I'm in prison for this this unity of the church. And then he goes on to say, don't wreck the unity. I'm getting ahead of myself. My outline is four points. What is this call? Point one. Number two, what does it mean to live worthy of the calling? Number three, how do you live worthy of the calling? And number four, what's the foundation of the calling? So, number one, what is this call? Verse 1, I therefore, prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So the word call is used twice there. The first one is a noun and the second one's a verb. Let me do the second one first. What's this call, this to which you have been called? It's a verb, this 
You've been called. What? This verb describes the action of God by which he has saved us. God has called us to himself. Uh, Paul describes his own conversion this way in, in Galatians 1.15. He says, God called me by his grace and was pleased to reveal his son to me. This is saving call. Uh, likewise, Paul, in, the, in, the, in the Romans 8, 29 and 30, you know, the, the great chain of salvation, the golden chain, the five key words that describe God's sovereign conversion, God's sovereign salvation for us. Those whom, he, those whom God foreknew, he predestined. Those whom God predestined, he called. There it is. Those whom God called, he justified. Those whom God justified, he glorified. Calling embedded in the, in the saving work of God, this, this call by which we believe and are saved and we're brought to Christ. That's the call. That's the call. But then what about the noun? What about the noun? I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. The calling. It's a thing. The calling. It's the saving call that brings us into this reality, this life in the grace of God that's ours in the gospel. We're, we're, we're called into, into this, this life, this reality of, of union with with Christ and reconciliation with God by his spirit. It, it's, a, it's, a, it's a reality. Here, here's a verse. Uh, 1 Corinthians 1.9. Paul says, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So the call of faith brings you into this fellowship with God and his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. That's, that's, the, that's the calling. And Paul has spared no words <laughs> to describe the, the reality that the saving call brings us into, this, this calling, this, this way of life. I mean, it, it's all over the first three chapters of Ephesians. God is now our Father. Christ is our Lord. We've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We are chosen and holy. We're saints. We've been predestined to adoption as children of God. By his call, we who were dead have been made alive. We've been lavished with the riches of God's grace, forgiven our sins, redeemed, and sanctified, and, and justified, and will be glorified. And, and God has gathered us into this one new people, Jew and Gentile, fellow citizens with the saints, fellow children of God, fellow heirs and recipients of all God's promises as we live in the reality of our shared eternal hope guaranteed by the Holy Spirit. That's the calling. 
That's the, the reality of the life that the saving call brings us into. So now, question number two, what does it mean to live worthy of that calling? This is absolutely critical to get right. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Paul is not urging us to live in a manner worthy to deserve the grace of God to us in Christ, in salvation. It's not it at all. That would be a denial of the grace of the gospel. <laughs> I mean, the, the beauty of the gospel is that it's free. It, it, the, God saves us in the gospel because we don't deserve it. So this, this in no way teaches that, look, if you live in a certain way, you'll prove yourself worthy to receive the gospel. That's not it. That's, that's Islam. It's, that's all kinds of other religions. That's not the point here. And, I mean, the good news of the gospel is we are unworthy of the grace of God. And he showered his grace upon us anyway by the work of Christ. So what is it? To walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called is to live in a manner that fits the calling. To live in a manner that accords with the grace of God to us in the calling. It, it's to live in a way that's fitting, that accords, in that sense is, is worthy of the gospel. Illustration. David the shepherd boy, became God's anointed king of Israel. Remember, he's called a man after God's own heart. And yet, when he committed adultery with Bathsheba, the wife of one of his own soldiers, Uriah the Hittite, and when he then subsequently arranged for Uriah to be killed in battle, David was acting unworthy of the kingship to which he had been called. Now, David's behavior, did, if he acted like king, did that mean he would deserve being king? No, he was king. And that he didn't act like king showed that he was acting in a manner that didn't accord with him being king. It wasn't worthy of the king. It wasn't fitting. So, it's not that living up to the calling, living worthy of the calling makes us worthy of the gospel make us worthy of the calling, but rather it's having received the calling by the grace of God. It's having the, the fact that we've already received the calling of the grace of God, that we are called to live in a manner worthy of it. In other words, 
our living worthy of the gospel isn't to show how worthy we are of the gospel. It's to show how worthy the gospel is of a life that accords with it. It's question two. Here's question three. How do we live worthy of that calling? Verse three. By being eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That's how. How do you live worthy of that calling? The calling to which we have been called? Well, by being eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. It's an eagerness, a, a diligence, or a zeal to maintain the unity of the Spirit. And to, to do otherwise, to be eager to tear down the unity of the Spirit in the church or destroy the spiritual unity of the church is to live in a manner unworthy of the gospel. 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen helps with this description of a spiritual unity that's ours in Christ. 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews and Greeks, slaves are free, and we're all made to drink of one spirit. So this is the unity of the spiritual unity that we have in Christ, in the gospel. We are all made to drink of one spirit. We're indwelt with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit has has enabled our union with Christ. He's, he's filled us and enabled our faith. And, and we are now one body. All of us who believe, one body, we share this, the same Holy Spirit. We were made, we were all baptized into one body. This, this deep and profound, real spiritual union that's ours, which is why it's very interesting and always been encouraging to me, at least as long as I've been at Bethlehem and as long as I've been working on ethnic harmony, <laughs> that it says, be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. I, I think in the early days, this is in the early 2000s, we're working on unity in the church, you know, ethnic harmony, racial harmony, and we're thinking, this is so arrogant, that we got to create unity in the church. And, you know, it, after a couple of swings at that pitch, you know, you just, you know we, we, we can't hit that ball. And then this text marches in and says, yours is not to create the unity. God did. Yours is not to wreck it. Yours is to preserve it, to be eager to preserve it, to be diligent to preserve it, to work to uphold the unity. Oh, that just landed with such hope and grace on our efforts and still does in me today in laboring for unity in the church. It's a given. Ours is to cultivate it, preserve it, not to ruin it. Be eager to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. How's that done? 
There's two pairings of descriptive words here. Verse 2 explains. With all humility and with gentleness. This This is the way we preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. With humility, also called lowliness. It's an attitude born of God's grace. It's humble before God and has a corresponding humility before other people. It's a right sense of self in relation to the graciousness of God to us and the fact that he does not treat us as we deserve. It's not arrogant. It's not proud. It's not self-exalting, but it's God-exalting. And notice the little word all shows up in front of this one. With all humility. And then gentleness. This is acting in a manner that's not harsh or rash or mean or anything like that. It's, it's gentle, even-tempered. The word is used of a, of a mother to her child. It's noteworthy that Jesus describes himself with these two words in Matthew eleven twenty nine. 29. He says, I am gentle and humble or lowly in heart. Jonathan Edwards, the great theologian, wrote this about gentleness. A lamb-like Dove-like spirit and temper is the true and distinguishing disposition of the hearts of Christians. Dane Ortland, in his book on, entitled Edwards on the Christian Life, he, he gathered together the words around this word gentle. Uh, in the writings of Jonathan Edwards to try to get a flavor like, what does he have in mind when he's thinking of this, this gentleness that belongs in, in, in every believer? Here's what he writes. He observes. Edwards returns to the same synonyms time and time again when speaking of gentleness. Here are the words that orbit that word in Edwards' writings. Calmness, long-suffering, forbearance, quietness, patience, kindness, a lamb-like or dove-like spirit, and especially meekness. Gentleness makes us like little children. In one of his sermons in 1750, he brings much of this together when he speaks of divine grace. Now, quote, generating those sweet, calming, and quieting principles of humility, meekness, resignation, patience, gentleness, forgiveness, and a sweet reliance on God. With all humility and gentleness, 
I'm going to add the, the other pairing here and then try to put a description on it with some other text. The other pairing is with patience and loving forbearance there. See it in verse 2, with, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Patience and loving forbearance. And it's not surprising at all to me that both of these are aspects of the character of God. Patience. God is slow to anger. God is patient and forbearing with us as sinners. And, and by his patience, he displays his mercy and his grace, as well as his satisfaction with the death of Christ for us. In, 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 in forgiving us all our sins, the death of Christ, it, it's enoughness is celebrated in God's patience with us. And in God's patience, he, he shows his commitment. And he who began a good work in us will bring it on to completion at the day of Christ. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he glorified. He's going to get it done. So there... What does that look like in people? It's a beautiful thing, and, and you know it. It's a beautiful thing. It looks like showing concern not only for our own interests, but also the interests of others. It's, it's showing honor to one another. It's when bringing correction, we don't bring it with a sharp stick in the eye with harshness or cruelty. When someone's caught in a sin, we restore them with gentleness. We bring the gospel to people with respect. In disagreements, we're not looking for a fight. In fact, I would say in disagreements, we're not even believing that in a disagreement about ideas threatens our unity in Christ. It, it's patience with the full assortment of human beings that make up the church. You know, everybody's not as easy to get along as you think you are. <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> I'm not as easy to get along with as I think I am. I'll own it. I mean, the, just think of the assortment of people in the church. I mean, it's easy for me to pull stories from my, my church back in the 90s. I, mean, I came to church once and there was, there was a lady in the church in the tree. You know, she was in the tree waiting for the doors to open. <laughs> Patient with all the full assortment of people in, in the church, including the lazy, the faint-hearted, those who are weak and needy, those who are critical, bearing with one another when someone annoys you, responding not with the vengeance you think somebody deserves, but responding with the grace that you know they don't deserve. Patiently enduring evil. 
continuing to teach and encourage and correct in hope of God's work and imitating God's patience and forbearance and the humility and meekness of Christ. You're not going to see that displayed on Netflix or on cable news. You're going to see it in Jesus and in God the Father. What's the foundation of that calling? This is point number four. I'm going to read the verse and then comment on it. This is an amazing passage. Verse four. There is one body and one spirit just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father who is a Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Now, what in the world is going on here? You know, Paul has this, this calling, this command to us to live uh, be diligent to preserve the unity in the spirit in the bond of peace, to live that way in accord with the calling to which we've been called. This, this burden is on him, and it's so big. And so what, is, what does he do? He, he, he puts underneath that command the most massive, the biggest ground, the biggest foundation that he can think of or that I can think of. There's one and only true God, our Father who is over all and through all. There's only one Lord Jesus in whom we believe and are baptized and are saved. There's only one church, only one body of Christ indwelt by the Holy Spirit. There's only one glorious eternal hope to which we've been called to enjoy and praise God for his grace forever and ever and ever and ever. Like, what else? What's bigger than that to put underneath this command? He puts God underneath it. The oneness of God. The oneness of God in the Trinity and his saving work for us and the hope that's secured for us in the gospel. There's there's nothing bigger to put this teaching on top of. So may God give us grace not to trifle with or sabotage the spiritual unity that's ours in the gospel in this church. My concern is going forward that, you know, that God would shape the culture of Bethlehem downtown with this, this aspect of worthiness to our calling, worthiness of the gospel, that we would be a people who have a bent to preserve and, and to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That would mark us. That would be a trait of this, this church culture. And, and, 
you know, a, a cynic could say, well, does that mean you don't, you don't do the hard things? Like, don't have hard conversations, don't do church. It doesn't mean any of that. It doesn't undermine the rest of the Bible. <laughs> but it means in the doing of all those things, we do so with an eagerness to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. If you haven't voted, I haven't yet. I hope you do. As really Chuck said it earlier, um, we, we, on the one hand, live here, but we live here as strangers and as aliens, as citizens of a heavenly kingdom. So we vote, and yet, May this election season not be, not give rise to disunity in the church, but rather, so like Judo is what I'm praying for, is that in, in the season that could increase division, may God give us grace to whoop, turn it to an occasion to be eager to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace all the more. With all meekness, humility, and gentleness, and with patience and forbearing love. God, make it so. Father in heaven, thanks so much for your word. <laughs> your word is, is always good, and it's good for such a time as this. Uh, thank you for all of your grace. Thank you for the calling to which we've been called grant grace that we would live accord, live in accord, fitting, worthy of the gospel we have received. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720-13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.